0: Would you please open a copy of the Bible and find your way to Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew? You open a copy of the Bible. I say copy because uh, we, we are uh, stepping into the an ancient world when we open our Bibles, and, of course, our, our Bibles are, are, are products of, of history, and they're products of translation and transmission. The original text penned uh, by the various authors of these 66 books that we collectively refer to as the Bible have stood through the sands of time and they stand up to the greatest scientific uh, scrutiny that is available in our advanced age. And what we see in the ancient manuscripts, we see to corroborate uh, with the modern copies of the Bible that we have and we're thankful for those copies, in particular for those who only, say, read English and are relying on English. Uh, For for those who read the ancient languages, of course... you get get a bit more, you're you're able to see... hey, the ancient text says what the modern text says... so as you open to your modern uh, translation... we give thanks to God for His provision in this. By way of historical context, the the Gospel of Matthew... that I ask you to turn to is written by the historic figure, Matthew. He's an eyewitness of the historical Jesus. More than an eyewitness, He's he's a a follower and a friend of Him. He knows Him personally. And so we, we open to this text with eagerness and excitement and, and thankfulness... ...because if we didn't have this text there's certain things that we wouldn't know... ...about the historical figure of Jesus and who better to tell us than one who was close to him? I don't know about you but if I want to know something about a person or an event... ...I'm very thankful when I meet someone who was there or, you know, someone who knows the person... ...and say, hey, what, is that, what was that person like or what happened that day? You know, someone who's there, you say, oh, no, that, 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 that's good. So we come to the text of of Matthew... giving thanks for Matthew that he has written these things down... and more importantly giving thanks to the spirit of the living God... who has inspired this text and used Matthew in such a way as this... from the first century to the 21st century... from the ancient uh, Jewish context of these, these men who wrote in Koine Greek... all the way to Los Angeles in our modern English text. So the title of my message this morning... if you have a bulletin or you, you you downloaded the online bulletin... is a special symbol for saints... and in this message I want to talk to you... about a very important biblical ritual... that provides a symbol for us about our faith... and that biblical ritual is baptism. So, spoiler alert, I'm going to be talking about baptism this morning. I'm going to be speaking about baptism... because it's fundamental to our, our faith. It's one of those things... that as fundamental to our faith, so we want to make sure folks understand it. Uh, Further, I'm going to be speaking about baptism because as we shared in our community announcements today, we have a baptism Sunday coming up at the end of the month. And so we want to make sure that uh, folks who get baptized understand what it means. I I don't know about you, but I I grew up with Christian parents and I grew up going to church, and there were a lot of things in church that I didn't fully understand. And and often I would ask questions, you know, hey, why do we do that, or what's that about, or why should I believe that, or whatever, and I wasn't given sufficient reasoning. It was like, well, that's, you know, what the Bible says, or you got to do that, or just be quiet and stop asking questions, you know, here, here, just do it, you know. Uh, We don't want to have that kind of a, a culture in the life of our church. We don't want to have a check your brains at the door when you come to church. We want you actually to put your thinking caps on when you come to church to be ready to learn, to be ready to ask questions, to be ready to dive deep. And so with the end of the month coming and baptism coming, we collectively as a community want to say, I want to make sure our church understands this. Uh, and and often there's people in the life of the church who, you know, they haven't been baptized. They're sort of secret about it too. You know, it's like, I haven't been. Are they going to catch me or whatever? So I want you to see how beautiful it is so you're not uh, walking around feeling like, I haven't, you know, like I haven't been baptized. Uh, and well well, let's do it it's this awesome thing you know it's like you know if you'd never tried a taco or something like what are you waiting for they're they're awesome they are absolutely awesome you you need to try them this is amazing so i want to make sure that we all as a community at delray church we, we understand man baptism is amazing but by way of introduction i need to first ground this this sacred symbol of baptism in what's known as the Great Commission. And so I've asked you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew... to find your way to the final chapter, Matthew 28. And so by way of introduction we're going to ground this sacred symbol of baptism... this religious ritual of baptism in the Great Commission of Jesus Christ. Now what is a commission? A commission is when someone in authority gives authority to another. When someone in authority authorizes someone under them for a specific task, um, two of my, my sons are in the front row here, often I give them authority to do things in the home. I'll say things like, go tell your little brother Isaiah to stop playing video games. Uh, and all the parents said, amen. Right? I would say, you, Elijah, go tell Elijah. Elijah, you go tell Isaiah to do this. Or Micah, go tell Obi he needs to get up. It's time, it's time to get ready for church this morning. So in, in so doing, I'm giving my sons an authority that comes from me so that if Isaiah doesn't stop playing video games and Obi doesn't get up, they are in trouble with me. Because I gave them a commission, so they carry my authority in doing that. Uh, you, you might not be a parent, but you might experience this at, at work if you're in a position of management or whatever, and you say, I need you to do this, or you send out a memo, that that piece of paper has your authority behind it. That's what a commission is. And so so we're at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, and we're here with the historical Jesus, we're here with His eyewitnesses, His followers, known as the Mathetes, the Talmudim, the disciples, as we translate it in English. And Jesus, on His authority, is going to commission them and extend His authority to them, and they, by way of extension to us, carry uh, an authority from Jesus. In terms of timing to situate the text, the historical Jesus, when He gives this commission, of course, it's at the end. So, so we've finished His teaching ministry, we've we, we finished His, his, his life. He, he's hung on the cross and bled out to death and died in front of them in the public. A few days later, He rose victoriously from the dead and manifested, showed Himself Physically in the body, risen from the dead, to his disciples. They could touch him. They could, they could see him and they listened to him. And he, thereafter, rising from the dead, taught them and, 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 and was with them. And at the end of this, for some weeks being with them post resurrection, he gives them this great commission. Let's look at the text Matthew chapter 28. Draw your eyes at verse 16. But the eleven disciples, they proceeded to Galilee to a mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some were doubtful, the text says. Let's talk about that for a moment. They're worshipping Him. It is a sin to worship anything other than God alone. This is a clear indication that the historical Jesus of Nazareth was rightly acknowledged as God. Albeit in the flesh, He is fully man to be sure. I'll say more about that. But he is fully God, and so it's right for him to receive worship. He does not correct them and say, oh, don't do that. He receives their worship. So they're, they're worshiping. They believe in him. They've given their lives to him. They've you know He's risen from the dead. I mean, they're worshiping God in the flesh, risen from the dead. And yet the text says that they're doubtful. The text says that they're doubtful. Now, why are you doubtful? You've been with him for years. You've listened to him teach. You've... You've seen his love for you. You've seen his grace. You knuckleheads are always doing dumb things. We got it in these gospel accounts. We read about it. And, and what does Jesus do? He just keeps coming after you. He keeps loving you. He's a gracious guy. He's a loving guy. He's the best friend you have ever had. He is the smartest guy you have ever known. He has power that you've never thought was possible. He, he changes water into wine. He makes dead people raise up and even when he was dead he raises himself up how on earth can you do a miracle like that when you're not even there because you're dead dead people don't do stuff have you been to a cemetery lately nothing happens there they're dead they don't do stuff but he rose himself up from the dead clearly he's more than mortal So why, by golly, are you doubting at this moment, at the very end after everything that you have seen? Now, the text is uh, reminding us here at the very end of of everything that he's taught him and all all of this, and it's reminding us of this this call of worship and this commission that's going to come. It's also reminding us of our frail feet, that just because you are in him, just because you know him, doesn't mean that you won't have seasons of doubt. This doesn't mean that you won't have... Uh, you know, questions, you see. Now, their questions, to be sure, aren't questions, are you God, because the text says they're worshiping Him. Did you rise from the dead? Are you the one? Are you the, the Messiah? The one that the ancients were waiting for, the people of Israel specifically, Messiah, the anointed one is what that means, Mashiach. Are, are, are you the one of prophecy? Are you this Messiah? Are you the Savior? The text doesn't say they're, they're doubting any of that. They, on the contrary, they're worshiping him. So what's the doubt about? The doubt is about why are we going up this mountain and what are you doing? Because, you see, those ancient prophecies said the Messiah was going to come and he was going to overthrow uh, tyranny and oppression and social injustice and wickedness and, 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 and he was going to usher in a new kingdom. He's prophesied to be like the great King David who's going to come in and bring a a kingdom. And I mean, we've been following you, Jesus, and you've said a lot about being the king and surely you've shown yourself to be the king and you are of the line of the great King David and you fit all the prophecies. When is your kingdom going to come? And why are we walking up this mountain? We should be down there in Jerusalem. Should be over there and you should be walking up the stairs to get on the throne and to overthrow the, the Herods and to make the city clean and to get rid of all the, the thieves and, and to get rid of the crooks and to get rid of the, you know, the, the prostitutes and, and to heal the sick and, and, and to have lions laying down with lambs and kids playing with vipers and make everything like, like Eden again. Restore justice. Why are we going up this mountain you see in the Bible, mountains are significant in the storyline of the Bible. If you, if you read the Bible, you, 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 right away you get it. You go, wait, we're going up on a mountain. Typically when you're going up on a mountain, think Moses, Sinai, think going up on a mountain. Typically when that happens, it's the ushering in of a new age, an epoch. You might say a dispensation. Like something's about to transition here. Why are we going up? What are you about to do? Because when we've gone up on mountains with you before, Transfiguration, Sermon on the Mount, what are you about to do? Verse 18, And Jesus came and He spoke and He said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Recall that I said the commission involves authority. A commission is a giving of authority. So here Jesus talks about his authority. He says, I have all authority over the earth. How fitting to be on top of a, ma- a mountain. So you have that, you, you, you can see, look, all, I have authority over all of this. In the book of Revelation, I, I love it. There's this scene in the book of Revelation where Jesus is depicted as a lamb who is worthy to open the title deed of the earth he alone can open the title deed because a title deed is given to the owner of a, of a property. He alone owns it. He is the owner and the ruler of the earth. He has all authority over all creation. He is the creator in the flesh. And on that authority, he gives a commission. Think about that authority for a moment. That ought to bring encouragement to our discouraged souls. If you've had a heavy week, in particular, if you've been sharing your, your, your faith and trying to live it out and you know things aren't working or people aren't listening and or you yourself aren't obeying and god and you you feel the weight of sin and you're, you're wrestling you have to come back to that authority that has been given to you so i have a confidence that i have i have his authority in what he's asking me to do he, he he's given that to me he said do this and you do it on your own strength but this is on my authority he intends for the church to be triumphant in a task what is the task well, the task tells us it is to, to make disciples. Go therefore, verse 19, and make disciples. Verse, verse, the verse tells us to go and, and make disciples. How, 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 do, how, do we, how do we do that? Verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. How do we do that? We do that through teaching. We do that through observing, through obeying. And then he, then he closes verse 20 by saying... And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So, so, so you have his authority, and you also have his presence. I'm with you. And again, this is an indication of his deity that he's God. I mean, I can't, I can't be with you if you're in different places, let alone in different times, to the ends of the ages, to the ends of the epochs, to the ends of the through through all of the eras, I, I will be with you. You have my word, you have my authority, and you have my presence. Now, if you were reading Matthew's Gospel in one sitting, when you got to the end here in chapter 28, you would notice something about this. I'm sending you into the world. I'm sending you to everyone talk. I I I want you to go to all the nations. I want you to go to all people. If you're reading Matthew in one sweep, you would go, but that's not what he said in chapter 10. Let me put chapter 10 in front of you so you can see it. Matthew chapter 10. Jesus summoned the 12 disciples. He gives them his authority. And he he instructs them. Matthew 10 verse 5. Do not go in the way of the Gentiles. Do not enter into the city of the Samaritans. But rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go preach saying, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. Don't go to the nations. The word for Gentile is interchangeably... Uh, nations, ethnos gets used. You think of different ethnic groups or people groups, language groups. Don't go to them, Matthew 10. Matthew 28, go to them. What, what what happened in between chapter 10 and chapter 28? Well, now going back to the text of 28 in front of you, now you can begin to understand some of the doubt that's going on. Hey, w- w- you you told us earlier to preach the kingdom was at hand, that this is... a uh, uh, happen. This is about to happen. You're about to bring this, and we've been preaching this. Why are we going up the mountain? And now you're talking about taking it to everybody. What about the house of Israel? When you open the Gospel accounts, we have four of them inside of the canon of Scripture. They open with this talk of the kingdom, and they open with this historic figure known as John the Baptizer, or is often referred to as John the Baptist. And, and, and he says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And he preaches that there is this Messiah coming and he says he has a winnowing fork and he's coming with fire and he's going to separate the wheat from the chaff and he's going to set things on fire. He's going to baptize people in fire. That's judgment talk. And so John is in the waters and he's, he's getting people to come into the water uh, going through this ceremony, which we'll talk more in this message, baptism, and hence he's John the baptizer. He's putting them in waters. He's cleansing them. And we're going to start with water because fire is coming. Fire is coming. The Messiah is coming. is coming. The fire is coming. The kingdom is coming. The fire is coming. Why are we walking up on the mountain? Where's the fire, Jesus? Now when you read the gospel accounts, Luke has a has a a sort of an appendix or part two to it. It's known as the book of Acts. It overlaps here with the scene in Matthew. Let me put this in front of you. Acts, Acts chapter one. This is same mountain, same Jesus, same dudes. They're with Jesus and they're saying, you're about to ascend, okay? You got us up on this mountain. What's going on? Acts chapter one, verse six. Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, verse 7, well, I'm done with Israel. I got this new thing called the church. It's going to replace them. And, you know, those promises, they're all fulfilled in me. And so there's no future Israel or something like that. The kingdom, you know, it's in your hearts or whatever. Duh. It's, It's allegorical now. He doesn't say that. He says it's not for you to know the times or the epochs eras, ages, dispensations, the future things that are going to happen. It's not for you to know that. But what I want you to know, verse 7, is that the Father has fixed by His own authority, commissioning, authority, the Father's authority, the authority in the Son, the authority given to you. You, verse 8, Acts 1, will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. I'm sending you to the nations. I'm sending you to all people. Remember what I said earlier, and don't forget that. In Matthew chapter 10, you go to Israel, and you tell Israel that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom is at hand. What does that mean? Well, the king has come. Right? I would, if I'm traveling somewhere or whatever, say I'm in, uh, I don't know, the UK, and I see my friends, I go, California's in the house. They don't think California is like, there. It's like, they're, I'm, I'm here. The kingdom of God is at hand because the king has come. The king is here. The king's in the house. And the roof is on fire. You must repent. You must come to me. You must enter into this kingdom. That is to say, you must be in the king if you're going to be a part of the inheritance of the kingdom. Now, the king legitimately offered the kingdom to the people of Israel. That's what all the prophecies are about. Abrahamic covenant, Davidic covenant, the land covenant. It's all about that. Uh, he's, there's going to be a literal kingdom in the earth. Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Pray for what? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, and the king who's offering it to them. Lord, is it at this time, we just saw Acts 1, you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel. No, no, no. I'm going to do that. The fathers fixed that. That's going to happen. But before that, you have to go into the world. You have to go into the world to the remotest parts of the world. You, 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 you have to go. Hopefully your Bibles will still open in Matthew 28. Look, look at the text, 28, 19. You go there for to all nations. And what, what do you do when you go? you just, you just go around the world and just be travelers and get passport stamps? No, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In the Greek text, there are three significant participles here in Matthew 28 in his uh, rendering of the Great Commission. Three significant participles to write down. They are going, baptizing, teaching. Going, baptizing, teaching. Each participle is dependent on the main verb. I'm going to put this main verb in front of you. Mathe to This is one Greek word that is translated into two English words, make disciples. So the commission, make disciples, has these three participles going, baptizing, teaching, and those participles are giving you the process of what it is to make disciples. And in this message, I want to focus in on this particular participle of baptizing, and hence the title this morning, A Special Symbol for Saints. And before we, we, we get into focusing on the participle of baptizing, uh, you, you know, I want you to see, look, they, they belong together. So we'll be kind of isolating baptizing, Uh, The the teaching component or catechizing component is is a part of that. The going component is a part of that. We don't separate them. They're all a part of the one thing. So we mobilize, that is, go. We catechize, that is, teach. We baptize, mobilize, catechize, baptize. They belong together. Now let's move by way of introduction in the Great Commission to talk about the second point on your outline, the imagery. Baptism involves imagery, and now we're going to focus in on this specific participle, the baptizing. What what is the imagery of it? What is its significance? The word baptize or baptism comes from a Greek word, baptizo. It is a word that simply means to dip or to immerse. It is a word that invokes uh, uh, imagery, specifically of immersion. The word appears 73 times in the Bible, 71 times as baptizo, and two times as baptizomai. Baptism is a practice of immersing people in water. So when we see baptism inside of Scripture, it is common to see phrases like coming up out of the water. You come up out of it because you went under it. Here I put in front of you Mark chapter, 10, Mark chapter 1 verse 10 that says you know, immediately coming up out of the water. You come up out of the water because you've been immersed into the water. Baptizo. In uh, Greek literature around the time and thereafter, baptizo always means that. It always means immersion, being immersed in water but now that said in some traditions in the history of the church you have sprinkling and and pouring traditions where someone gets the water and gives you a little you know gives you a little water gun uh, gives you a little pour or whatever Um, you know and that comes in the history of the church Uh, granted if you're in a desert or somewhere that doesn't have a lot of water I mean I think that would be appropriate but historically speaking and etymologically speaking this word means immersion there are other words that could be used for sprinkling, for pouring and whatnot, and those words are never used inside of sacred scripture. And so there's, there's something about this practice of baptism and, and, and being immersed that invokes certain imagery that is very important. I, I, I wouldn't want to argue with someone or waste time, you know, oh, you pour, you're not keeping it real. What's up with the sprinkles? That's not baptizo, you got to keep it real. You know, I, I'm not going to trip over that. Uh, That said, typically those who sprinkle and pour, they typically uh, are a part of traditions that will baptize uh, babies and infants. Uh, And obviously you don't want to hold a baby underwater, although in the Orthodox tradition you can find some videos on YouTube of priests doing that, and they're kind of funny. But anyway, uh, typically those go hand in hand, and as we begin to get through today's message talking about baptism, you'll see why uh, we don't baptize or sprinkle or pour babies in particular. So that actually is more of a substantive issue than uh, whether you, you spray or pour or absolutely immerse. But originally it's about immersion. Now let's get into the meaning of the text. You'll see on your outline under imagery, A, you have meaning. The, the, the meaning is tied to the symbolism. The symbolism is very rich. And in a message like, like, like this, I, I, want, I want to unpack what i can in the time that i have uh, and there's so much in there and so we're going to talk first second point on your outline about imagery and then the third point we're going to talk about importance and when we get on that point i'll, I'll try to unpack some of the theology of and and, and really just really really help us to oh, wow this really is special We'll we'll get into that in the next point but but for now let me say this just succinctly uh, baptism is an act, it's a ritual, that identifies us to Christ. Uh, the Bible speaks of Christians being in Christ, in Christ, preposition in Christ. We are so closely identified with Him that the Bible uses that, that, that phrase, those two words, we're in Christ. Now, the idea of baptism is being in something. You're being immersed in the water. It, it, that's part of the imagery. Also, why sprinkling and pouring doesn't totally give that, but you're, you're, you're being immersed in this. Now, when you're immersed in something, you're being overwhelmed by that substance, and it's, it's changing you. I'm dry right now. get I immerse myself in water. It's changed that characteristic of being dry. I'm now, now wet. In the ancient world, baptizo, you, you'll find in literature, like the dyeing of cloths. You, you get a bucket of dye, liquid dye, and you take a fabric, and you put it inside of the bucket, say a white fabric, and you put it inside of red dye, and you, and you pull it out. It's been immersed in it. It's been completely changed by it. I, I, I ended up watching I don't, uh, some dumb Instagram video of some guy like uh, doing that to Converse shoes. You know, he's like bleaching them and then re-dyeing them or whatever. Like, oh, that's cool. Uh, you know, you take it, you immerse it in it, It formerly was some other color, and you immerse it in it, and now it's something else. As a piece of white cloth would be identified with the dye in which it was dipped, so too we who are in Christ, we have been immersed in Him, we have been changed by Him. It's a symbol of that. So baptism is what we call an ordinance because it has been commanded by Christ. In the history of the church, there are, are some, even within the Protestant tradition, who will use the word sacrament, which uh, means uh, a conveying or a means of grace or something along those lines. I prefer the word ordinance because uh, sacrament carries some baggage in particular through the the Roman church in in church history and what have you. Uh, but, But an ordinance is a simple way of describing it because it's something that's been ordered by Christ for his followers to do so as to symbolize being immersed in him and identified with him. Now, where does baptism come from? Did that John the baptizer guy make it up? Uh, you know, was it some new thing that you know, Jesus and his followers and this John guy invented? No, it goes all the way back to the first book of the Bible. We read in the book of Genesis about the great flood of God's judgment with Noah and how God saved them through water. The apostle Peter, write it down, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. Peter pointed out that the water of the flood in Genesis, and to quote, St. Peter, symbolizes baptism that now saves you. There, there, it was. This, this is a symbol. This goes back to Genesis. The Old Testament prophets, the Hebrew prophets, the prophets of the First Testament, Isaiah, Ezekiel, the great King David, they likewise use imagery of the washing of water to describe this picture, or this symbol of God's internal cleansing of us. In fact, if you were here at the beginning of service, uh, we read from Psalm 51, and, and it has that, 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 that language of internal cleansing. So there's this... Practice that goes all the way back where God's people would use water and the washing of the body as a symbol of God's washing of His people. Uh, for the ancient Jewish audience, they wouldn't have known it as baptizo because that, that's Greek, that's a foreign culture to them. They knew it as mikvah. So on the outline here, imagery, you have basic meaning that I've given to you. And now we move from meaning to mikvah. You need to understand where, where it comes from culturally. If you want to understand you know, something, you've got to go back to the original culture. I made a mention of tacos earlier. If you've never had a taco, uh, Lord help you. But, you know, the, your first experience shouldn't be Del Taco or Taco Bell. It, it just shouldn't. You should go have a, a real taco. Not, not to diss those places because I will patron, patron them. But, you know, uh, you've you got to go back to the culture and the source. Here's the culture and the source. It's the Jewish praxis of mikvah. This is where baptizo is, is it's immersed in, pun intended. Archaeologically speaking, when you go into the ancient uh, Jewish culture, you find what's known as mikveh, that's a singular way of saying it, or mikveh which is the plural way of saying it. We, we, we find, archaeologically speaking, these pools that people would enter into, and these very pools that you find in the ancient world, dating, dating way back thousands of years, uh, they, they, they look the way that it looks today even in Jewish culture. Uh, the Jewish culture still practices mikveh, Put this picture in front of you with modern example, and there you see an archaeological dig of an ancient example. Uh, typically, in the ancient world, and even contemporary times today in Jewish culture, the mikvah were indoor. They were they were indoor, and you would enter into the water, and you'd be immersed in the water, and this was a part of ritual cleansing. Now, in ancient culture, the mikvah'ot, it was a regular part of their worship. So when you approach the temple, outside of the holy temple, there's mikvah'ot. The, 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 the priests have mikvah typically attached to where they live. And so you would, you would go through ceremonial washing as you approach God all the time. That was, it wasn't a one-time thing. It was a, a regular thing. And so while mikvah and baptizo, they, they overlap, there, there are some distinctions there in that mikvah was something they regularly practiced to remind themselves of their need to be washed by God because of, of sin, whereas the Christian practice is something we do only once. Now that said, in the ancient Jewish culture of mikvah, they actually had a mikvah that they only did once. And this is very significant because it helps us understand our practice of baptism. John, John the baptizer... He wasn't baptizing in mikvahot that were indoors. Where was he baptizing? Outside. Down by the river, right? The Jordan, right? Now, now, now at first glance, you might go, what's the big deal? Because they had indoor mikvehot, the outdoor mikvahot of the river that flowed through the city was reserved for a specific thing. When a non-Jewish person, a Gentile, wanted to convert... To, to the faith of Abram and Isaac and Jacob and David... when they wanted to become a part of the common... of the inheritance of Israel. When, when they came to believe in the God of Israel... they would take them down to the river... and they would have them go through a mikvah of conversion you you we believe that the god of our forefathers has saved you though you were outside of our people he has rescued you he has brought you in the hebrew bible has all these prophecies about the god of israel saving the nations and bringing the nations in and in fact the kingdom anticipates the nations coming to him and and israel was supposed to be a priesthood to the whole earth and so we expect the outsiders to be brought in and when they 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 come when god saves them they stand before the people outside and they say, I believe your God is my God. And they get baptized in the river. The outsider is brought in. So John the baptizer, when he goes down to the river Jordan and he's standing outside of the temple and he's saying, repent and be baptized, his audience is Jewish. That sh- Hopefully it's hitting you. If not, let me help you. The Jewish man is treating the Jewish people like they're outsiders, like they're dirty Gentiles. You, you're not. You, you might. You, 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 might have the right pedigree. You might have the right ancestry, but you're not actually in Him. You must come to these waters. You must enter, and the waters of the Jordan. The archaeology on it. They're they're murky waters, even to this day. When you go, they're murky, dirty waters. It's not a nice. It's not nice. You got to get into these dirty waters. That's a part of imaging your dirt and your filth. You've got to get into these waters and confess that you're not actually in. So John is a Jewish man. He's kosher. He's law-observing. He's orthodox. It would have been a scandal that John was treating the Jewish people this way, baptizing them outside. Now now you're in the promises. If you're interested to read more on this, New Testament scholar Craig Caner has written about this in the Bible Backgrounds Commentary. I'll give you a quick quote. Dr. Caner writes, Pagans wanting to convert to Judaism would repent and be baptized. And so here John, the baptizer, treats Jewish people on the same terms as pagans. That's why it was a scandal. That's why the guy got his head chopped off. <laughs> right? You're, out, you're outside insulting our people. You're, you're outside of the temple where there's all these mikvah, uh, mikvot, uh, like they don't count, like they don't wash, like they're not our, our symbols. And you're, you're bringing the people out there. So the baptism's tied to mikvah, in a sense, and we do it once, like they did for converts from, from, from the Gentiles into the people of Israel. And, that, and that's how we understand baptism. If you've come to faith in Christ, we're, we're all outsiders. We're all outsiders. We enter into these waters to, to depict that he's brought us in to the covenant community. It's worth noting that John the baptizer in the New Testament is really the last prophet of the Old Testament. If, if we're rearranging the books, I would include the, the gospel accounts within the First Testament. And when John baptizes in the Jordan, he's, he's ushering in those Old Testament promises as he's baptizing. He's, he's fulfilling prophecy. And what were these prophets doing in the days of old when they were baptizing people? They're using water as a symbol that we, that we, we, we need to be cleansed. They're using water as a symbol of the anticipation of the anointed one who would come and wash everyone. That moves us from meaning to mikvah to to Messiah. Before we get to Messiah, it's worth noting that even today, this is a quote from the Jerusalem Post, when a Gentile, read the quote, a Gentile who converts to Judaism miraculously becomes a part of the people of Israel. This is accomplished by total immersion in the living water of the mikvah, the ritual bath. That's a quote from the 21st century. So that that practice is still alive today. And in the Jewish community that's still awaiting the Messiah to come and the hope of Israel and these things, uh, we look back and see the early Jewish community that received the Messiah and those things, and we go, wow, this this is amazing. So all of it then is pointing from Messiah, meaning mikveh to Messiah. John preached the kingdom was at hand. We saw that in the book of Acts. Are you going to restore the kingdom to us? The baptism of John is tied to the preparation of the Messiah. Later, the baptism of Jesus and his followers is overlapping with the symbology. It, it, it's no longer about preparing the way for the kingdom because the king has come, and he's told his disciples to pray for thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And he has said the times and the epochs are fixed for the kingdom to come. So now baptism is a picture of those who have received the king who had come and those who, who, who are taking on the hope of the kingdom that is to come. It is something that we do as a symbol, as a sign of faith, of being saved by Him. It symbolizes what happens inside of a person. Baptism is just water. It does nothing to you. It might exfoliate your skin or you know, cleanse the body or whatever. It does nothing to you within. It does something on the outside, and that doing on the outside, here's the language of 1 Peter chapter 3, that, that removal of dirt from the body or the, or the flesh is a picture of the removal of of the sinful nature, of the flesh within the heart of man. He's given you a new heart. He's washed you. And now you go through this ritual, this act of going in water, and you're picturing for all of us what has happened. I can't see God saving you. I can see the effects of it. I can see, wow, your life has changed since coming to Christ. I can't see Him washing you inside, but I can watch you obey Him and get in the waters and I can see that and go, wow, that's a, that's a beautiful picture of, of what he has done. And as you do that, you remind us of the importance of his saving work. So we move from introduction to imagery, now to point three on the outline. Importance, we need to move fast. We've read Matthew 28. We've grounded this in the command of Christ. Would you move from the Gospel of Matthew to the book of Romans. The Apostle Paul writing is a part of the eyewitness community of Jesus in the first century to believers in Rome, hence the title Romans. He's going to have some things to say in the sixth chapter about baptism and all these things around that chapter about soteriology, about salvation. So we're going to look at the importance of baptism, specifically in soteriology and what God does when he saves. Now, as you're turning there and you have on your outline the importance, let me say that baptism is important, uh, one, because it is, as we've already seen, a command of Christ. He said, do it. So, so, if I have, I got my sons here, uh, you know, if I give them uh, a, a authority to go tell their young, younger siblings to do something or whatever, that, that's a command. It's important because dad said this is what you need to do. So, if you don't, right, you're, you're in trouble. It's important. I, I command you. Why is baptism important? Because Jesus commanded us to. Why is baptism important? Because Jesus himself was baptized. And so to the believer who is yet to be baptized, that's huge because in, in a way it's sort of uh, posturing that we're above our Lord. He himself was baptized. Why would I not? Would I give my, my, myself a place to be above him? He was baptized. Why, you know, I, I need to be as well. It's important. He was baptized and he commanded it. Now, of course, Jesus' baptism is tied to the mikvah of John. Jesus' baptism is tied to kingdom preparation. So the baptism of John and the baptism that Jesus underwent is different than the baptism that Jesus commands his followers to do. Because this is a one-time act, symbolizing the one-time act of salvation, and it's post-resurrection. Those are different things to understand. So so it's different. And that was a part of the confusion, going back to why they were doubting Matthew 28, like, is the kingdom about to happen? Like, What's going on? And now we're doing mikvah, acknowledging that the king has come, you, you know. So the overlaps are significant, but they are distinct to be sure. I've asked you to turn to Romans, and I want to talk to you of the, the importance of the symbology by first talking about sin. Would you turn to Romans uh, chapter 3 so that we can talk about sin? We've got to have some theology so we understand the, the significance of the ritual. We saw First Peter chapter 3 a moment ago in the language of washing of dirt, and inside of Scripture, sin is described as dirt or filth. At the beginning of service, we read Isaiah 51, and, and, and Psalm 51. We we you know, created me a clean heart, wash me, hyssop language. And you, wow, you know, this, this language of, of, of washing, it, it, it's conveying that sin is like dirt. It's like being dirty. Not, not just being dirty, but ceremonially dirty. So in terms of temple and, and worship, you can't approach him unclean. And so you, you, you need to be washed. That language of sin being like filth and, and, and God's grace being like washing is existentially understandable, hopefully for everyone in the room. When you sin against God, when you do the wrong thing, you often have an experience of feeling dirty, don't you? You feel like, ah, you feel dirty. You know, like when, uh, you know, I feel this way when I'm traveling or I have a long flight when you've been on an airplane for 10 hours. Uh, you know, and yeah, they're recycling the same air, and the person in front of you has gotten Rona hacks or whatever, and you're, how many people sat in this chair, it's so disgusting, did they really clean it, you know, oh, you know, and then you get home, and you, just, you feel like, I need, to get sh- I need to get in a shower, I need to shake this feeling that I have. You sin against God, you have that, like, particularly sins of the body. You fornicate, watch pornography, you know, you, you lie, you cheat, you, you, you feel a certain way. It doesn't feel good. And, th- and, that, and that's the deceptiveness of sin in particular because sin promises what it can't deliver. Do this. You'll feel good. And for a moment, the taste of the forbidden fruit might feel a little sweet, but then it, it hits you. It creeps up on you like one of those spicy chips. You know, this ain't spicy. Next thing you know, you're sweating and you're looking for the milk. Right? It, it, this is hot. This is dirty. This is dangerous. You feel that way. Romans chapter 3, I ask you to turn to. It's not a baptism text. It's a soteriological text. It's about sin. And look at verse 23. It says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. We're all filthy. We all need to be washed. We've all done things that are displeasing to God. There is no one who is innocent. We have come short, the text says. (laughs) That's a nice way of putting it, right? You've come short. Well, He's going to move from that little nice way of putting it to give you some descriptions. Look at verse uh, 10. There's no one righteous, no, not one. There's no one who understands. Ouch. There's no one who seeks for God. All have turned aside and together they become useless. Oh. There's no, no one who does good, not even one. Their throat is as an open grave. Oh, I like the fall short part better. Uh, with tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery is in their path. The path of peace is not known by them. They have no fear of God before their eyes. He goes on and on and just digging in our sin. And Paul's not wagging the finger, "Eh," you know, he's not above the audience looking at them. He's acknowledged this of himself. Move from chapter 3 to chapter 6 and see why this is so important. See why this is so dangerous. In chapter 6, verse 23, he's got this line. The wages of sin is death. Ten out of ten people die because ten out of ten people sin. And that's the punishment that we deserve. You've rebelled against the one who gave you life, and so life is taken back. It's not just physical death, it's a spiritual death. And, and, and beyond physical death, in the afterlife, there is a death and a punishment that comes with it. But pick up where I left off in 623, if you're still looking at it, that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This moves us from uh, this subpoint, sin to the next subpoint of the Savior blessed be his name blessed be his name jesus has come to set us free from the wages of sin and death he has taken that upon himself as a man i said in the introduction he's more than a mortal man he's god of eternity you say you know how does how does that work well as christians we believe in one god who eternally exists as father son and spirit the son is distinct from the father he's not the father the son is distinct from the spirit he's not the spirit the spirit is distinct from the father the father's not the spirit Sign up for the pneumatology course that's coming up. We'll be digging into this more. We're going to have a grand time. There's one God who eternally dwells in three persons. The person of the Son took on an additional nature. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit have one nature, the divine nature, God. Now the Son has taken on an additional nature, so they's he's fully God and fully man. You say, well, why on earth would you do that? Because he has, he has, he has come to stand in the place of humanity. Uh, You have Romans in front of you. You can turn in your Bible to Romans chapter 9, verse 5. It's it's very clear here. We read in the text, to them belong the patriarchs from their race according to the flesh, Christ, Romans 9, 5, who is God over all. He is God in the flesh. This is significant that the Savior is, is not a third party that God sent. We're a third party in the Great Commission. We're clearly not God. Uh, But in salvation, God has come Himself. He didn't send a third party. As God, He has the prerogative to forgive. And so as God, He extends that prerogative. As man, He takes the penalty that humanity deserves, namely death upon Himself. And then as God, He rises up from the dead to show that that payment took. It is in our account. It is given to us. Going back to Jesus and His baptism, I, I said that his baptism is different than today. One, it's tied to the mikvah of John in Israel and what have you in the coming of the kingdom, but now the king has come, and so we're on the other side of this. But his, his baptism is also different because we come in baptism as sinners. He is the only saint who ever received the ordinance of baptism. Let me put in front of you Matthew chapter 3 so you can keep Romans open. When Jesus comes to the Galilee of the Jordan and he comes to John the baptizer, John, look at, look at Matthew 3.14 in front of you. John said, Hold up, wait. You, I, I'm not going to baptize you. I, I have need to be baptized by you, and you want me to baptize you? you, what, what, are you what are you doing, Jesus? I'm the herald that the kingdom is going to come. You're the king. Why are you getting in these waters? Jesus answered, Matthew 3 15, permit it at this time, permit it in this way. It is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. You see, His baptism isn't tied to repentance, it's tied to righteousness. When Jesus got in the waters, it wasn't a symbol of cleansing. It was a symbol of Him taking those dirty waters upon Himself... ...just as He took our dirt upon Himself on the cross... ...when He hung and He bled out and He died. He who knew no sin became sin. He got in the dirty waters. He took our dirt upon Himself. He was and he is God, and when he was baptized, we, we see evidence of this. Continue reading in Matthew. I'll put it in front of you. Verse 16, after he was baptized, Jesus came up immediately out of the water. Baptizo, again, it's a merchant. He didn't get a sprinkle, sprinkle, pour, pour. Uh, and behold, the heavens were opened. That's, I've baptized a lot of people, and that's never happened. Because he's the king of glory. So the heavens open. And the spirit of the living God, descending upon him as a dove, lights on him, and verse 17, a voice out of the heavens comes and says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Again, going back, there's one God who eternally dwells, his father, son, and spirit, and here you see them all active in this scene. This this is incredible. Inside of the Bible, when, when doves appear, new ages are dawned. We think of the dove and Noah and the end of the flood and salvation has come, it's it's that, 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 that same imagery. There's a new age that has dawned in the one who has come. He is the son of Adam and the son of Abram. He's come into the dirty waters, and he has entered into them to take our guilt and our shame upon himself so that we then can be washed by him, and we can enter into those waters, and we can give a picture of what he has done for us. He has saved us. So we move from sin to Savior to salvation. I hope you still have Romans open. Turn to Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God, look at it, look at it, but God, Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He made the payment in our place. He died for us. It's vicarious. He's a substitute. The, 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 the car was coming and it was going to hit us and he pushed us out of the way and took it and died in our place. That's Romans 5, 8. Turn, turn, turn a couple of pages, find Romans 10, 9. What does Romans 10, 9 tell us? That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You, salvation comes not through doing works. you got to do this work of baptism to get saved. you got to be a good boy or a good girl. you got to obey him to be saved. you got to do, do, do. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Do, don't, do, don't, do, don't. And if you do enough do's and you you stay away from enough don'ts, then God's going to save you. You Scratch his back, he'll scratch yours. No, 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 no. The message of the faith is not do. The message of the faith is done. He did what you did not do. He does what you cannot do as a corrupted child of Adam. He is the new Adam who has come. He's the first piece of the new creation that has come, risen from the dead, stood in your place. And he offers you salvation. What does it mean to be saved? It means to be rescued from wrath. Right? I was saved from that. I was saved from that punishment beyond being saved from the punishment, we're being saved from the righteous judgment of God himself. You're being saved from the Father's judgment. He, he, the Son, saved you from the Father's punishment that was coming your way, and he took it upon himself. Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. He is said to be here, Romans ten nine. Who, Who is he? He's the Lord. What is a Lord? A Lord is someone to be obeyed, your, your master. It, it, it burdens my heart that Much preaching I hear in contemporary churches today never tells you that he's master, he's Lord. Never tells you that that means you must obey him. Never tells you that you must bow your knee to him. Never tells you that one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Never calls you to repent, to seek him, to bow down before him. Much of the preaching I hear, Jesus is not Lord. Jesus is a therapist. He's a lap dog. He's company. He's a buddy. He's a, you know, he's a friend. Add him to your friend list. He's, you know, he's a funny guy or whatever. No, 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 He's, he's Lord. He is not a therapist who lives to recenter our dysfunctional lives. He is the sovereign Savior who died a bloody death on the cross of Calvary and rose from the dead, who by the power and authority that he alone has can rescue us from the penalty of sin, death, hell, and so much more. Let me ask you, do you believe him? Let me ask you, do you know him? What does it mean to believe in him? Well, you know who he is, and you make assent to who he is, and you trust who he is. Uh, for you kids who are in the room, you can't rely on your parents' faith. God has children, not, not grandchildren. You must come to him on your own. You must believe that he has died for you. You must receive this great gift. Romans 10.9, you must confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord. Romans 10.13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Call on him now, I beg of you, I plead of you, call on him now and be saved. Come to the waters of baptism and display that wonderful act that he has done. And that act is just that, it's a display. It won't do anything, it won't do anything. The call to do is to believe and repent. And let me remind you that belief and repent is a grace, it's a gift that comes from God. Now, uh, saying that, I've got to quickly land the plane, I, 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 you know, the hour is upon us, but I would be remiss if I didn't say something about uh, the confusion and the cults that uh, sort of propagate confusion when it comes to baptism. So a quick sidebar, and then, and then we'll, we'll, we'll land this plane. But let me put this in front of you, because... Again, I feel a sense and a burden here as, as one of your pastors to share this with you. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Uh, Colts and the confused love to quote this verse. Peter says, look at it, it's in front of you. Repent let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There are cults out there who like to confuse people and they say, if you are not baptized in water, you are not saved. Now before I explain, and they use this verse as the proof text. See, it says that you have to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Now before I explain why that is wrong-headed, it is important to note that when you are reading the Bible, or any book for that matter, you have to filter what might be unclear through what is clear. And in the case of baptism and salvation, the Bible is very, very, very clear that salvation is a grace through faith in Christ, not by works of any kind, including baptism. It's done, not due. In our public reading of Scripture, we read Ephesians 2. It made that loud and clear. We are saved not by works, but by faith. So then why, then, are people confused here? Well, part of this is the manipulation of the power of cults. Part of this is the way that people prey on a culture that is biblically illiterate. Well, they always say, yeah, well, you could say that, but, but look at your book. That's what it says. Join our, 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 our cult, you know, and, and you've got to get baptized by us or you're not saved or whatever. Well, okay, let's deal with what the text says. That's a misunderstanding of what the text says. You are taking the word for, and you're pushing all this stuff into it, this works-based salvation, into the word for. Now, that word for that we have in the English comes from the Greek word ace. Uh, Like the English word for, it has various different meanings. Those who claim that you have to get baptized to be saved are taking that word for, and they're interpreting the word for as in order to get. You want to be saved from God, you want to be rescued from hell, you want to have a relationship with Jesus, you want to be a part of the kingdom that is to come, you have to get baptized in water in order to get that stuff. So they're taking the word for and interpreting it as in order to get. The fact, however, is that in both Greek and English, we are not locked into that meaning. That understanding is wrongheaded. Consider this helpful example. Okay, When, when someone says, take two aspirin for your headache... Take this Tylenol for your headache. Take this ibuprofen for your headache. It is obvious that I don't mean take these so that you're going to get a headache. Right? That's, not what, that's not how the word for is operating there. But, but take these two pills because you already have a headache. In, in this case, in Acts 2.38, we see it is be baptized because you are saved because you are forgiven, because you have repented, because God has washed you. And this is why we don't do that to babies or infants or anything and certainly not to those who don't believe in God because if you don't believe, then what's the point of doing it? It's supposed to picture that you're already saved. We see the word ace is used in connection with baptism this way in Matthew chapter 3.11. I'll put it in front of you for sake of time. Here you read the clause, baptize you with water for repentance. And the same word is used there, ace. Obviously, in Matthew three eleven, this is John the baptizer preaching, I baptize you with water for repentance. He's not saying, you get in this water, it's going to make you repent. Right? That's like Nacho Libre. You remember the scene where he sneaks up on, on dude and he just dunks him in the water? <laughs> like, if that were the case, we'd just, just fill up water guns and just go save all of our friends. But that's not what the word for means in this context. Hopefully, you still have Romans open. Look at Romans 6, 3. And find in Romans 6:3, that line, it says, baptized into ace, it is, baptized ace his death. Now, the word into here, the word ace, is, 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 replace that with in order that, and it makes no sense. Be baptized in order that his death? That doesn't make sense. Paul has a similar phrase, if you are, are taking notes, and I hope you are, 1 Corinthians 10, 2, where you can see, again, ace used in conjunction with baptism. And it is not, it's not saying in order that. That is a ridiculous understanding of how the word for or ace is functioning in the text. It cannot mean that. Baptism is not required for salvation. That said, while not required, it is regular, it is expected, it is commanded. And so we we, we come with that understanding. Now back to the text, back to the outline. Sin, Savior, salvation, security. Uh, Romans chapter 5, let's move quick. A wonderful message in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. We have been justified by faith. Not by baptism, not by works. You've been justified by faith. Therefore, we have peace. We have shalom with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the point on your outline is security. It's secure. Peace has come. You are no, no longer at war with God. You are no, he's no longer your enemy. You, you no longer fear Him in that way. We fear Him in a different way because He's holy and He's God, but we're secure in Him. Move from Romans 5 to Romans, Romans 8. What does Romans 8.1 tell us? There is therefore now, what does it say? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are secure. The wrath has been paid. It's been paid in full. Romans 8 in front of you, look at verse 38. I love this. I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor nor the, the present, nor the future, nor any powers, height, depth, anything in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You look at baptism and you go, that person's been washed. That person's secure. It's done. Donezo. It's done. 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 He paid it all in full. You were washed. It's done. It's done. You're secure. The final point on your outline: if you flip your outlines, we've covered inter- introductory, Great Commission, imagery, cleansing, the importance of this. Now the implications. You have some final references on your outline, and there's not time to look at them. have been saved. Notice the call. He ordered. He commanded. So I I would be remiss if I preached a a sermon on baptism not to call and to command and to order for you to be baptized. And baptisms are coming up end of the month. Sign up. Let us know. We would love to see it. We're going to keep talking about it because we want to make sure people understand what they're doing. We want want to make sure that, that you get this. Believer. What are the implications of this? Think of the sin, the Savior, the salvation, the security that we're talking about. Eternal lives are at stake in the proclamation of the gospel. We've been commissioned. The implication of this is we need to go into Los Angeles and the world sharing the good news of Christ. We we need to get out there. Wrath is coming. The the one with the winnowing fork who separates the wheat from the chaff, the baptism of fire is coming. We must proclaim him. Speaking of fire, some of you... Uh, are, are aware this week there was a horrible accident on La Brea and Slauson. I live around the corner. I go through that intersection all the time. It's a hor- horrible thing. Uh, the news reported immediately that five people died. I guess they discovered a sixth in the fire. Uh, sidebar, one, one of one of them was a pregnant woman. It just shows how fallen our world is because the death count would be four because they didn't, you know, some of the news reporters wouldn't count the, the baby. See, well, that's so demonic, so twisted. You, you, you let your own political you, garbage. You can't even. You no, know, those five. Those five that, that baby's a human. You see that loss of life and the report of the six from the fire and, and I, I'm reminded uh, watching and I, I drive through that intersection almost every day. I deserve to be clipped. I deserve to die. I deserve to spiral in fire. That's what I deserve. You watch the cars that made it through, and you go, man, that was like a miracle. Like how how those cars made it through, the one car that was a miracle. I'm reminded that, that that's what I deserve. When I see tragedy and death, I'm reminded, man, that's what I deserve. I deserve death. You, you watch this car, and it hits into this like pole or whatever. There's a gas station right there. And you watch the fire begin to increase if you had the stomach to watch the video. And then you watch cars just driving by. And you watch it. I watched it too many times, frankly. Like, why, why aren't men stopping and getting out? I see men pulling over and running to the fires. Willing willing to have their flesh burned to rescue a life? There's a story uh, in this, the, the reporting. There was a baby, I guess, that flew out of a window. And Where, where are the men at? There's people dying in the fire. You no know, one's doing anything. And analogously, I think about the church of Jesus Christ. The world is on fire, brothers and sisters. It's on fire. People are dying. Many believers are just driving by I didn't get hit. We're just driving by. We're just coasting. We never share the gospel. We never press in and call people to repentance. We don't rebuke those who claim the name of Christ and are are walking in the way of destruction. We don't give ourselves to be burned by the powers of this earth. But But instead, we watch in the comfort of our homes on YouTube. I'd be remiss to preach this message and not call the whole church to repentance, to not call the whole church to fill these empty seats, to not call the whole church to be burdened, and even to let yourself be burned by the city of Los Angeles for sake of the gospel in this place. We have the text of scripture in front of us. We see what God has done. We see what sin is. We see the Savior. We have in front of us now the table, which is another ordinance that God has has given to us. With baptism, we also have communion. We're going to sing some songs to close our service, and we're going to come to this table. And on the table, you have a little cup of what represents blood, and you have a piece of bread that represents the body of Christ. Baptism is a symbol proclaiming what he's done. He's washed us. The table is a symbol proclaiming what he has done. He bled out for us. His body was broken for us. So as we come to the table and we take these, baptism is something we do once. Community is something we're commanded to do as often as you can. When the church gathers, we do this. We come in celebration, but we also come in repentance. Prepare your hearts, brothers and sisters. Our sister is going to lead us in song. Maybe as she begins, just take a moment and make sure you've come to the Lord in in repentance and faith. Cry out to him. You know, we could have a habit of just, you know, jumping up there and grabbing the, the bread and the drink. Just take a moment. Others of you, maybe you, you, you need to be the first to get up here. You get run up here. You can't, you're, you're, you're filled with joy over what he's done for you. you. You want to run up here. You want to give your offering. You want to come to the table. You're, you're excited. Let's seek the Lord for his joy. Let's seek the Lord for repentance. Let's see the title of the sermon, A Special Symbol. We've got a special symbol in baptism that we're going to do later this month, but we've got a special symbol in front of us now in the table. I'm going to pray, and then the invitation is yours to come. To come not only to the table, but come to the, the Lord of the house of this table and be renewed by Him. Father, we thank You for the gift of song that we can sing praise to You. We thank You for the gift of the table that we can picture what You have done for us we thank you for the gift of the spirit who has been poured out to inaugurate your church we thank you for your promises that never fail and that will come to pass we we long, we long the return of the son we come to this table proclaiming that he has come and will come we long to see the very thing that those disciples asked is it at this time that you will restore the promises to your people israel O King of Israel, we pray that you will come. O Savior of the nations, the Gentiles, we long to see that day. Oh, we give thanks that we were brought in outsiders, and now we are in you, in Christ, immersed, changed by you. Thank you for this table. Thank you for the gospel. Receive these songs of worship, our offering, as we come now. In Christ's name, amen.